Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and the ideas that are shaping our world. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about race, language, war, mental health, the future of humanity, and the meaning of life. Let's not kid ourselves. Politics is always in a state of crisis. There's not been a time in the last hundred years when British politics, let alone European or Western politics, has been content and peaceable and calm. One of the prices of living in a democracy is the running narrative that something is seriously wrong. That said, there are crises and there are crises. And whereas policies and politicians and parties are always somehow on the edge... It's rarer for an entire political idea to be in a state of frenzy and flux. And yet, many have the sense that this is where we are today. That we are, to quote Matthew Arnold's beautiful stanzas from the Grand Chartreuse, wandering between two worlds, one dead, the other powerless to be born. That's the argument of a new book by the political philosopher Adrian Pabst, which not only explores the nature of this interregnum, but puts forward an idea of what it is that might just be being born in these strange times. The idea, and the title of the book, is Post-Liberal Politics. Adrian, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much, Nick. It's lovely to be with you. In order to understand what post-liberalism is, we need, I think, first to understand what liberalism is. And that word is famously fraught with misunderstandings. So tell us a bit about what you understand liberalism to be. Well, the first thing to say is that there is no such thing as the essence of liberalism. You know, there isn't one pure form and then somehow everything flows from that. It is very much what the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein would have called a family resemblance. You know, there are a number of liberal traditions. They have certain things in common, but perhaps not absolutely everything. And as I said, there's nothing that we can sort of reduce liberalism to. However, I think there are some broad elements that we can, I think, agree on. One is about the primacy of the individual. I mean, that's not necessarily the same as rampant individualism, but clearly the idea that somehow the individual has a preeminent status, both ontologically and then also politically, I think is true of most, if not all, currents of liberal thinking. The idea that there is some relationship between the individual on the one hand and the sovereign state on the other hand is, I think, another important feature of liberalism. And then, of course, all sorts of other aspects that we might mention, such as the rule of law, such as the social contract. So it's really trying to recognize the sheer diversity of, of liberalism, but also to say there are certain things that a lot of liberals have in common. And I think that's the, the starting point. That's a very helpful disambiguation because it's very important to understand that in the book you're not anti-liberal. Indeed, you credit liberalism, as you've just talked about, with some very important commitments to equality or freedom or rule of law that are absolutely central to the modern world. It's not so much liberalism as, if you like, hyper-liberalism that becomes the problem, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think hyperliberalism, because it's an intensification of the most problematic assumption that liberalism makes, is a much greater problem than liberalism. But elsewhere, in an earlier book with John Milbank called The Politics of Virtue, I think we also 
set out a critique of liberalism even before it became hyperliberalism. So I think one can do both. One has to do both because even early liberalism has some problems. I mean, one is negative liberty. The idea that actually liberty is only ever the absence of constraints except for the law or private conscience, that's a very reductive conception of, of freedom. And I think that's something that's missing in almost all liberal thinking, a positive conception of freedom. Freedom for what? Mm-hmm. And if it's freedom not just for self-emancipation or choice, then we have to have a debate about what freedom might be for. And if it's freedom at the service of human flourishing, then the question to liberals will be, what is your conception of, of flourishing? Mm-hmm. If it's just individual happiness aggregated into some form of collective utility, that's, again, really rather reductive. One of the fascinating things is that this discussion cuts across the political lines that we are most familiar with. Obviously, these are the lines of left and right, which go back to the French Revolution 220-odd years ago, 230 years ago now, and have, for better or worse, served as categories for the vast majority of at least Western politics ever since then. One of the interesting things about this discussion is that you can find examples of this, let's say, this abusive understanding of liberalism, both on the left and the right, can't you? You can see hyperliberalism, if you like, on the right in terms of hypercapitalism and on the left in terms of extreme identity politics. Yes, that's right, Nick. The excesses and errors of liberalism are clearly found on both. I suppose there's just one thing I would slightly disagree with you about in the way that you just put it. That is, yes, it's true the left has had its own version of anti-politics and has done that, as it were, extremely effectively and well since the 60s. But let's not pretend that the right has been absent from identity politics until recently. I mean, the right has had its own version of identity politics for some time, going back to Richard Nixon and the silent majority and so on. I mean, that was not just an innocent response to what the left was doing. The right has been playing a fairly similar game for for some time too. That's a very helpful corrective. Just because statue toppling is getting all the headlines at the moment doesn't mean it's the only game in town. If liberalism is one side of this particular debate, it's very important to highlight the other side, which is a deliberate anti-liberalism or authoritarianism or sometimes comes under the guise of populism, which has famously emerged in Western politics in the last 10 years or so. And this is almost a kind of an equal and opposite reaction against liberalism, isn't it? It's a political movement that is anti-liberal in its bones. Yes, though I think it's also important to acknowledge that some of it isn't at all. And, And some populism is essentially a backlash against liberalism that simply says, look, we are actually for freedom, whereas now the ultra-liberals are threatening freedom. So, you know, one has to, again, be quite careful and and not in any way demonize all populism as anti-liberal. However, some of the populist movements of the last 10 years, but also going back further, if we think of Le Pen in France and other longer established political movements, are clearly anti-liberal in a number of respects. You know, they're proposing to roll back certain freedoms, certain rights. And they also have led an assault on certain institutions, the free press in certain countries. There have been questions over the free press in countries like Poland and Hungary in recent times, Mm. questions around constitutional balance of power. And so, yes, I think there are anti-liberal elements to a lot of the populists. And then if we go further afield, I mean, it's very clear in the case of Modi in India, Putin in Russia, Xi Jinping in China. I mean, there really isn't a lot of liberalism there, except, interestingly, economic liberalism. Mm. So some of the authoritarians around the world, and they are more authoritarian than they are populist, really have no problem with economic liberalism on one level. It's interesting how 
economic liberalism is really politically quite promiscuous. I mean, it's happy to get into bed with pretty much anyone. Well, that's an incredibly important point, isn't it? And I was going to raise it because it is a third very important context, not just the hyperliberalism of the West and the populist authoritarian of the West, but the authoritarianism that is growing around the world. I can remember conversations 30 years ago about admitting China into WTO on the basis that if China economically liberalised, political liberalisation would follow. Now, it really hasn't, hasn't it? Which has blown out of the water one of the cherished presuppositions of the kind of liberal triumphalism of the 1990s. Yeah, and it's not the case that somehow we hadn't been warned about that possibility ever before in history. There were various countries that were seemingly on, a, on an economically liberal trajectory in the late 19th century, and yet we know how that turned out when it came to World War I and the most rabid forms of nationalism and, and worse. Same in the interwar periods, where a number of countries went from democracies to sliding into totalitarian regimes. So history never repeats itself identically, but it has a funny way of producing certain patterns, and, and mm. this is one of them. And more recently, clearly Russia had already essentially shown that you can have economic liberalism in the 90s and it all ends with something far, far more authoritarian than, than you'd think. So the, the assumption that China would somehow be different from all of that must be one of the greatest delusions that has mm. happened to Western liberal thinking. But it's remarkable how really until fi five years ago, people still thought, oh, China will liberalize over time. It just takes a little bit longer. And now we've got a system that is state capitalist with a surveillance technology and ideology that probably surpasses even the wildest dreams of Jeremy Bentham and Panopticon. And I think it does raise profound questions over what are the cultural and indeed, I'd say, civilizational resources we might need in order to not only confront the threat from the Chinese system. I'm not talking about the Chinese people or Chinese civilization. That's wholly different from what the, mm. the leadership are doing. There is an assumption we sometimes have that humanising freedom is a kind of a natural aspiration to which we will gravitate by being sensible about things. And it really hasn't worked out that way in China and Russia and arguably in some ways India. And of course, with the Arab Spring 10 years ago, the idea that if you overthrow secular dictatorships, the nation will naturally gravitate to a kind of stable and sustainable humanising freedom. And it underlines how much hard work, how much of an achievement that kind of commitment to political freedom actually is. Yeah, and it's absolutely right to raise questions over which traditions in those different cultures and civilizations are actually on the side of freedom and which aren't. And we find that whilst secular dictatorships have clearly not only denied people freedom, but also stripped them of their dignity, of course, religious fundamentalism is often just as bad or worse. How do you then create a coalition of some of the more humanist secular traditions and some of the generous, broad religious traditions that would support freedom and dignity. And, and I think that's the task. Well, let's talk about, about transformation. I'm very struck by the, the fact that the subtitle of your book is The Coming Era of Renewal. It would be very easy for us to go through the analysis we have about what's happened to liberalism in the last 30 years or so and then say, well, the future looks like Putin. The future looks authoritarian. Perhaps you're naturally an optimistic person, Adrian, or perhaps these are the runes you're reading. But your argument is that this is an opportunity and a real potential for post-liberalism to step into this breach. Give me briefly a kind of intellectual genealogy, because post-liberalism isn't one thing, is it? It draws from a very wide range of historically very different traditions. Yeah, and maybe just as a preface to that, if I may, just to say that I very much like the distinction that I think was made by John Gray 
And that's between optimism and hopefulness. Optimism and pessimism are arguably fairly shallow sentiments because both of them essentially buy into a linear kind of conception of history. You know, things either get better or they get worse, right? It's a sort of fairly simplistic account of history. Whereas the difference with hopefulness is that we don't necessarily think things will get better, but we remain hopeful that they could. So that actually then puts the emphasis on agency. It puts the emphasis on human ingenuity and creativity, of all of the things that essentially make us social and political. And so post-liberalism, as you say, it isn't one thing like liberalism. There isn't an essence to it. It draws on a number of traditions, and perhaps the most important one is personalism. This whole idea that we are not individuals, nor are we just part of an anonymous collective, but we are relational persons. And the idea that relationality is more important than individual substance or a kind of monolith is, is really vital because it suggests that there's a third option between individualism and collectivism. We know that Catholic social thought, which is another important tradition that shapes post-liberal thinking, has always emphasized that we should not be reduced to binary choices between state and market, individual and collective, left and right, and all the binaries we can think of that, as you said at the outset, can be traced to pretty much to the French Revolution. So the person is different from the individual or the collective. And then another important idea is clearly comes from communitarianism, which is a third influence. And that is that actually community, and perhaps we should broaden that to human association, is absolutely vital because people do not achieve things on their own, and nor does it have to be all done by the state. A lot of it happens by people associating around shared ends. They're Mm. pursuing something together. Mm. but often more at the group level, at the level of community or association, as opposed to collectively or individually. So mm. that, that's a third tradition. Then beyond that, we could say ethical socialism, one-nation conservatism. So, you know, there's a range of intellectual and political traditions that mm. shape post-liberal thinking. Well, I'm particularly glad you mentioned those two as well, right, at the end, ethical socialism and one-nation or Burkean conservatism, because it's another point about how this particular debate has gone beyond left-right. And one of the significant reasons for hope in post-liberalism is that it can't simply be boxed as either a left-wing or a right-wing idea. There are deep post-liberal traditions on both sides of that historical left-right divide, which is a reason for hope, as you say. Well, I think so, because I think it's, it's hope for two reasons. One is there's hope that each side of the political spectrum can renew itself and that there are rich traditions that can help each political party or parties on those two sides of the spectrum to rethink their purpose and perhaps reimagine really what they're for and how they might be able to command majority support and govern, but also to change essentially the battleground of the political debate away from the rather sterile, is it more state or more market that we need? Do we need more individual freedoms or more collective security or whatever? There are a number of things that we both think are important, even if we might approach them a bit differently. So work, family, community, country, international solidarity and so on are things we can agree on as principles, but we might then debate exactly what that means in political terms or policy ideas and so on. But, you know, just Mm. to change the debate and to move away from these sterile binaries to something a bit more Mm. meaningful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reading Our Times. Don't miss our other episodes on war, the future, race, language and much more. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, why not take 30 seconds to subscribe, share an episode with a friend, leave us a review, or give us a quick rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners to find us. I do want to come back to this very important point about what this post-liberalism looks like politically. We will land there because it's very important. But before I do, I do want to pick up what I think is one of the most interesting points in this whole debate. You touched it when you were talking about personalism here. As it happens, it's a theme to which these Reading Our Times interviews so often gravitate, which is our conception of human nature and how so much of our politics and so much of this particular debate is grounded in either... Do you see humans as rational, sovereign, utility calculators? That's a very caricature way of putting it, but you get the essence, which feeds into a certain conception of liberalism. Whereas post-liberalism is open and very explicit about its understanding of humans as embodied and embedded and relational and rooted and frail and full of agency. And it's that very rich but particularly relationally constituted nature of the human that lies right at the heart of post-liberalism, isn't it? Yes. And that also means that, we, again, we're not really dealing with an ideology here. Post-liberalism isn't another political ideology at the same level as liberalism, socialism or conservatism. This is much more a reflection of who we are as social and political beings. And I suppose the most fundamental dividing line is perhaps between contract and covenant. Mm. It's perhaps really to say there are all sorts of contractual accounts of who we are, essentially formal legal or constitutional ties between people. But that's essentially the idea that there's sovereign will, transaction, rights, and so on. Or else a covenantal account, which is much more about a partnership over generations between different groups and interests, where what matters is not so much contractual ties as bonds of reciprocity, and actually, ultimately, gift exchange. Because really, the anthropology at the heart of post-liberalism is that, that life is a gift, nature is a gift, we're custodians rather than proprietors. It's about a partnership between the living, the dead, and the not yet born. And that matters because it changes the way we think about even things like rights and property. Rights and property matter, but they're of secondary importance. What comes before rights and property is what is life? What is nature? How do we understand the idea that they really are gifts? That we're involved in gift exchange, which means giving, receiving, and returning. And that perpetual circulation of gifts is far more fundamental than the exchange of property, the exchange of commodity, and all the formal ties. The formal ties matter, but only when they're embedded in something else. Yeah. I have to almost physically restrain myself from giving loud amen when you talk about gift. <laughs> An idea close to my heart. And just as an aside, the covenant contracts parallel, I think it's brilliantly worked out by Jonathan Sachs. And I think it was Sachs, actually, who drew that distinction between hope and optimism. Obviously, late and much lamented and a brilliant thinker. And I entirely yeah. agree that distinction yeah. between covenant and contract is so very important. Let's then, in our last few minutes together, focus in on the politics of post-liberalism. And here's my question. Here's my concern. We talk about pluralism in the book. It might be the early 20th century Christian thinker Figgis that you quote or at least reference. I think it's him who says pluralism is, it's more like an atmosphere. It's more like an inclination or a feeling or a culture than it is a political agenda. And I sometimes have that concern with post-liberalism. For all their thoughts on the left and the right, you know what the left and the right are going to do politically. You know, you tax more or you tax less. You have more or less state aid. And there are certain levers that you can and can't push. I'm enormously sympathetic towards 
post-liberalism. But I'm still not convinced it's a political agenda. It seems to me more like a, almost like a, a form of cultural renewal with political implications, which invites the question, you know, is it political? And if so, what does post-liberal politics actually look like? I think that is one of the most fundamental challenges for post-liberalism, not to remain philosophical only, not to say this is just about certain dispositions, though I think it is. It is about human dispositions and how we then bring that into politics. But it is very much to say, well, if we think that there's a certain conception of the person here, of human society and, and how things are, and politics fundamentally should reflect reality as opposed to pursue some abstract utopia, then I think politically what it means is, first of all, the recognition that politics is essentially about the, the reconciliation of different interests. It is the recognition that there are some very different interests, but that they can be reconciled. There's no inevitability about conflict, nor is there any inevitability about cooperation, but that on balance, human beings are disposed towards cooperation, mm -hmm. that they are disposed towards something like common flourishing. So it means conciliation of interests. It means a recognition that conflict is possible, but not inevitable. And then politically, it means to build the institutions and relationships that support cooperation and trust and the pursuit of the common good and the good life, as opposed to, oh, no, 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 politics should never aspire towards shed ends. It's just a pragmatic sort of exercise of power. So, you know, I think there are some real political implications that flow from it, never mind policy ideas around how to strengthen work, family, community, having patriotism that is also linked to internationalism. I think all of that can follow. I think where there is potentially an even greater challenge is to find a way for any political party or indeed a whole political system to move away from the sterile binaries mm. and to finally embrace a different, I wouldn't even call it a center ground because I think that's not a helpful way to think about it, but a new political battleground. How culturally are we going to get to the point where politics changes to reflect reality? And I think we've so far pinned our hopes often on political leaders, and that hasn't happened. It didn't happen mm. with David Cameron about the big society, or Ed Miliband about the good society. There were some hopes about Theresa May. That didn't exactly go well. So I think we have to get away from the idea that one political leader will do this. It needs mm. a much broader, much deeper cultural change, as you mm. said. But I do think the cultural change can happen. So what you're effectively asking for then, if I understand you rightly, is a kind of politics that recognises and then builds on existing, for want of a better phrase, grassroots movements or existing forms of cultural renewal. The way, the way in which I mean, it's often said, and it's a bit of a cliche, the Labour Party, British Labour Party goes more to Methodism than Marx, and it's an endlessly disputed claim. But the kernel of truth there is that the British Labour Party, as it emerged at the very end of the 19th century, drew on enormous grassroots movements, very often associated with nonconformity, and built a politics from existing practices, if you see what I mean, rather than in a top-down ideological conception of the proper relationship between capital and labour. It's that kind of politics you're after, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It is exactly that which builds on practice, as you say, rather than on abstract theory, but also one where there's already a reconciliation of interests within a party. So, as you say, the Labour Party was very much inspired and shaped by Methodism more than Marxism at crucial moments, but also by the reconciliation of Protestants and Catholics, for instance, in the Docker strike. So yes. it wasn't that there was a single dominant tradition. It was really the case that there was already that reconciliation within the party, and then the party could legitimately say, 
that it represented a large part of the people in the country as well. Yeah. And the problem, of course, is that political parties become such small elite-based organizations yes, rather than broader-based you know, popular movements. And that's exactly yeah. why we've ended, I think, in the political mess yeah. that we've been in. So let's end on a hopeful note. You've got some terrific commendations for the book from across the political spectrum. I mean, you're walking your, your talk here. So give me a hopeful answer in, to the question, what are the positive signs in our politics at the moment? Where are these signs of post-liberal renewal? So let me start by saying that I think the pandemic has certainly revealed the deep desire for community. And that was part of the first lockdown. You know, there was an extraordinary outpouring of solidarity. So I think that human spirit of friendship and generosity and so on was very palpable. But of course, as so often has been rather superseded by other forces. So we see these endless opportunities after financial crisis, after the Brexit vote, after the pandemic. There are these moments of opportunity and often it doesn't quite happen. But I do see some signs. On the conservative side, the work of Danny Kruger and full disclosure, Danny's one of the people who endorsed the book. But his new social covenant unit is trying to do something really important. And likewise, on the Labour side, John Crudders, and again, full disclosure, John has endorsed the book. His work on the dignity of labor has had enormous traction recently, whether it's the trade unions or even the employers. We saw that furlough was one example of government, employers and trade unions and civil society getting together to negotiate how to avoid mass unemployment. It's a fantastic example of a post-liberal politics in action. So there are signs. What isn't yet the case is that there's no single leader or political party or movement that has fully embraced it. But I think it's about the groundwork and it's about trying to prepare a generation or generations of political parties and elected politicians who understand that it's much more about work and community and country than it is about just individual rights or just individual consumer choice. And if we can even move the debate forward, then I think post-liberalism will have at least taken root in some respects. But look, it's probably work of generations and not just of a few months or years. The book is called... Post-Liberal Politics, The Coming Era of Renewal. Adrian, thank you for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much, Nick. Huge pleasure. You've been listening to the final episode in the second series of Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. I want to express my thanks to all my guests this series. Margaret McMillan, Alexandra Aikenvold, Angela Saini, Martin Rees, John Gray... Manoush Shafiq, Rome Williams and Adrian Pabst. I want to give a particular thanks to my producer Phil Bodger and to the team at Theos, Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. And I want to thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the series and I hope it's encouraged you to go out and buy and read some of the books we've been talking about. We'll be back for another series later on in the year, but until then, have a great summer.